Hey folks, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. We at Theopolis train men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we have a talk from Richard Bledsoe on homosexuality and the homoerotic and how it relates to tribal and national relationships and empire. We will be back in the book of James next week as we conclude that book series. And after we finish the book of James, we will have a couple of question and answer episodes for you. As always, we do invite you to take a look at those links down there in the show notes. And specifically, we'd love for all of you who listen to the podcast to download the Theopolis app. It is currently a free app and in there you can find video and audio series, psalm chants, and more. We really hope that you enjoy this time of teaching and we want to thank you so much for listening. And here is Rich Blood and here is Rich Bledsoe discussing the homoerotic. I foolishly put something up on the internet on the biblical horizons list recently. I should have saved it. Then none all of you could then be surprised, but some of you have at least seen a bare outline of this. So for some of you, I hope this is just a this is a filling out of some things. Um this topic, uh, the topic of, and I want to be, I want to be discreet here. I don't want to, I don't want to uh, go over certain boundaries that would be inappropriate. But the the topic of the homoerotic, or of the homosexual, is a topic that is very uh, much at the top of the plate in both America and in Europe. And uh, in in my own hometown, I have a uh, several ministerial groups that I've put together, and uh, part of what's interesting about I put I've put three of them together so far, and I'm trying. I would like to put two or three more together. Um, just as a bit of an aside, the interesting thing is out of out of three of them, two of them have worked very well. One of them has worked magnificently, and one of them didn't work and has sort of gone into oblivion. The, the curious thing about the one that didn't work is. I, I've concluded the reason it didn't work is because it was all made up of evangelicals. And everybody was bored. They got together. They kind of knew what each other looked like. The two groups that have worked have a very broad spectrum of from left to right. And it's, it's one of them, it's, not, it's kind of like this. The other one, it's kind of like this. Um, in one of them, the infamous Father Herman is over here. Who is he's a very conservative Roman Catholic, although very evangelical. And if you've been here in past years, you've heard me discuss the infamous Father Herman, who is an authentic exorcist. And on the other end is a UCC pastor who pastors the open and affirming church. Now, uh, in one of the other groups that has been getting together, see, my thesis is everybody's sick of their denomination. That's true of mainline people. It's true of conservative people. Everybody is sick of their denomination. And if you can just get people outside of that context on a local level, not a national level, but a local level, in fact, virtually a neighborhood level, because that's how I'm doing this. It's almost parish-like. It's almost neighborhood churches. And you can get people uh, to be interested in local ministry, and then you become friends with one another and you open the Bible and look at the Bible together, it looks rather different 
Um, everybody in every denomination, I think all denominations I know, look, you guys in our circles, we feel like things are going like this. Uh, it's, that's true everywhere. And all, whether it's mainline, whether it's liberal, whether it's conservative, it doesn't matter. I think the sense everybody has is things are like this. And I think it's because uh, the era of, of denominations being the lead form of the church is coming to an end. And God is beginning to do something else, so everything kind of spins around in circles at the denominational level. Now on the... the uh, uh, in one of these groups, uh, the ELCA guy had the courage to finally, and I knew this was under the surface, I knew it was going to come up at some point, but he raised the whole issue of gay ordination. And you could just feel everybody go like this. Well, in this group, there are, uh, there's a PCUSA guy, but he's evangelical. You know where he stands. He's, he's again it. There's an Episcopal pastor who sort of doesn't quite know what he thinks. There's an ELD, ELCA guy is more or less for it. There's nobody fanatically for it, but the question is how far do you tolerate things? My friend uh, Sam, who's the Baptist pastor, was appalled. Uh, he didn't even know anybody could think thing, things like this. Um, and the charismatic past, pastor was, uh, was likewise appalled. But the guys in the mainline churches, the ELCA, PCUSA, uh, the mainline Episcopal Church, they, it, it's come up and it's, you know, what happens every year in all of these denominations is it, if, you want to, uh, if you want to not deal with something, you turn it over to the Blessed Commission and the Commission will study it for another five years. That's what's happened in all of these denominations. You just endlessly study it and it's a way of of never taking responsibility. But we live in a time when, when uh, all the denominations are inching toward this. It's especially, it's actually a crisis in all of these groups because it's, it, it's public and it's a big deal in the Episcopal denomination because, why? Well, because, uh, you know, where, where are most of the Episcopalians in the world today? They're in Africa. And of course, they're on the verge of excommunicating the British and the Canadian and the American church over this issue because they want to be biblical about it. It's also the case, well, I won't go into that. That's a, that, that may well come up later. But it's not just the Episcopalians that are split over this. Presbyterians, there are more Presbyterians in Africa than the United States. There are more Lutherans in Africa and Asia than the United States. And the same thing is true in all of these all of these groupings, denominational groupings. The Western church has liberalized and the Western church has softened and the Asian and the African church uh, want to be evangelical. And the Western church takes refuge in process and the, Eastern, or the, the Asian and African church want to talk about truth. But now why is it that certain issues at certain times, I brought this, this is a little bit similar, a little not dissimilar to what I brought up the other night in terms of intellectual history. Why is it that certain issues become sort of in hip issues at various times in history? They're there all the time. You know, Brenda, who's not here tonight, she was, she was talking to me this morning about some tapes she'd listened to by Ed Welch, who's the counseling professor down in Dallas. And she said one of the things he says in these tapes is that, and Rob, you, you say this kind of thing. 
that uh, uh, diseases, uh, diseases are in and out. They're hip diseases. And uh, uh, he makes the point, he says, when I was a young counselor, every, he says, I saw all kinds of multiple personality cases. Now he says, I don't see those so much. Says, now you, then, you, then you went through a whole phase where everybody was manic depressive. And then everybody, then now you get a lot of schizophrenics. And of course, there was a period of time when everybody had ADD. I have ADD. See, that's my excuse for everything. But you see, why is it that, why it's almost the case, it's almost the, the, the case that it's almost like things go in waves or fads or fashions. And actually, all of these things are under the surface all the time. But at certain times, they peak, or they become the in issue. And in our culture, and in our world, right now, we find ourselves being moved further in the direction of the homoerotic becoming more and more normative. And it's normative in a lot of ways. So as the homoerotic becomes normative, you see that all other relationships begin to mirror that. So we find that Heterosexual relationships increasingly become promiscuous, and there is less marital commitment, and when there is marital commitment, there is more sterility. There is more voluntary sterility. There are fewer children being born. In other words, heterosexual relationships begin to mirror homosexual relationships, and it begins to be the tail that wags the dog. Now, what I want to do tonight is, um, is briefly, I want to do a kind of a brief overview. This is one of, a real central contribution that Jim has made, biblically, is um, the three forms of civilization. And you guys, you're all hip and in, biblical horizons people. What are the three forms of civilization? Yeah, the good, the bad, and the ugly, Yeah. Okay, yeah, but what, what kind of relationship? Okay, tribal. Um, and what kind of relationship would that be characterized by? What would dominate the tribal relationship? Yeah, but there's something else. See if I can get you to say it. Well, that's true, too. Father-son. Yeah, medicine man. The father-son relationship. So patriarchy, somebody said patriarchy, and they were right about that. So the father-son relationship. Then you have a monarchical form. And uh, what would dominate, what kind of relationship would dominate in a monarchical form? Brother-brother relationship. And then you have... <clears throat> An empire, a world civilization, and what kind of relationship would dominate in an empire situation? Alien monsters, yes. Anybody? What? Yeah, bureaucracy. Pardon? Oh, I know. No, you're, you're, there's truth in that, but that's not what I'm looking for. That's not the correct answer. Look, father, son, brother, brother. What else? Husband, wife. You're such a smart aleck. <laughs> All right, husband, wife. And 
you see, you see this just a little excursus here. The reason husband-wife dominates here is because in an empire, you begin to cross national boundaries. And how is it that national boundaries get crossed primarily? Well, through intermarriage. In other words, you go, a German crosses the line and marries a French lady or whatever. So husband-wife begins to become a form of uh, the merging of various kinds of uh, national entities or national identities or monarchical identities. Okay? So now what I would want to suggest is that there is... Now, let's, let's just stop here for a minute. Let's see if we can... Can you tell me where we find these things in the Bible? First of all, where do you find it very, you find it very early, father, son, brother, brother, husband, wife, and you have both the true form of this and you have a uh, perverted or rebellious form of this, okay? So, the, the first perversion of the father-son relationship is where? Pardon? Yeah. Adam, God and Adam. And Adam rebels against God. Okay, then, and this is the way, this is the structure of the book of Genesis. You find that what is first, what first goes wrong early in Genesis has to be made up, has to be corrected. So who corrects this in the book of Genesis? Where do you find father, son? That's really a big issue in, in the book of Genesis. Well, yeah. And Isaac. Now you could also say, so you can relate Abraham back to God too, because just as Adam rebelled against God almost immediately, Abraham has to spend his whole life doing nothing but believe. I mean, what's, what's Abraham's primary achievement? See, if you feel bad, you feel like you haven't achieved anything in your life, what's Abraham's primary achievement? His primary achievement is to believe God for more than 25 or 30 years, for what? That a son is going to be born, and then he has to live out the implications of that son. That's what his whole life is about, is being patient and just waiting for God to do one thing. Now, you see, your whole life could be given to God bringing one thing to pass. It might be lots of things that happen in your life, but the big background is one thing, and that's your great contribution to God's kingdom. See, that's how your life could be. So Abraham's life was. So he has to obey God for years and years and years. And finally, he becomes the father to Isaac. So that is made up. Okay, then next, brother, brother. Where do you first find that going wrong? Everybody knows this. Cain and Abel. <clears throat> and then, who has to make that up? Yeah, you find, well, you find uh, Isaac and... <clears throat> and uh, Ishmael, first of all. But then the big one is uh, Jacob and Esau. Okay? And uh, they don't kill each other. Actually, they end up, they actually, they're reconciled at the end. Yeah, Mark? It's important to note here that Isaac didn't have his own kind of book. Uh huh. Yeah. 
Yeah, Isaac is not, he doesn't, you're right, he doesn't really have his own story. The Isaac Ishmael story is a fairly minor paragraph in the whole thing. The real issue, the real story is Jacob and Esau. Okay, then, husband and wife. Yeah, sons and at the flood. We could talk about Adam and Eve, but uh, where you see it in a big way go wrong is, is with the before the flood when the sons of God marry the daughters of men. And, and I, I would take that to mean, you know, there are smart people who take that to mean succubuses and incubuses, which means humans marrying demons and angels. I think that's a little too weird. I think what you're seeing is, there are, look, there are smart people who believe that and make a case for it. And, you know, I don't know. Anyway, I think it means they married outside the covenant. So you have, you have rebellion in marriage and you have, a, you have destruction. And what it, what it leads to, it says prior to the flood that the world was filled with violence and finally this terrible collapse of everything and you have the flood. God wipes it all out. So you have sons of God, daughters... Of men. All right. Or did I get that backwards? All right, then where is that made up? Yeah, you could, you could say Isaac and Rebekah. Or you could say uh, Jake, Jacob and... Yeah, but see, the place where you really see it is who said Joseph? <laughs> Joseph. Joseph. Who does Joseph marry? Yeah. The priest's daughter. He marries the, the daughter of the priest of Egypt, and the implication is one of conversion. So it's true in her marriage. Okay? Now, I, what I want to suggest is that, well, let, let's, let's go a little bit further. Uh, if, we look at the, if we look at the New Testament, it is possible to see the th- first three Gospels as, as falling into this uh, same... Um, same, well, we can, do, we can do a little more of this. You can go through the Bible, and you find, you'll find uh, father-son replicated elsewhere further on. You'll find brother-brother, for example, David and, and uh, Saul. Actually, Saul and David, you wonder, is that father and son, or is that brother-brother? Kind of is, you know, it's kind of both. But it seems to be monarchical, probably more brother-brother. Husband-wife, you find the problem with Solomon, and, you know, it's thousand thousand chicks, and, uh, uh, and then you have it with uh, Ezra and Nehemiah, the same, same thing in, a, in an empire era. Right now, if we look at the first three Gospels, we see something that we see a certain matching up of this. Um, so if you look at Matthew, Matthew, which is by everybody's account a gospel to the Jews, but it also seems to be a gospel to the tribes. You can work that out. Mark seems to see Jesus, because Jesus is Moses here primarily, the tribal era. In Mark, he's David, the warrior David, so you can see a certain correspondence to a monarchical era. And in Luke, uh, all kinds of stuff in Luke that has to do with women. And uh, there's more women in Luke than... So in Luke, you have, you have more of an empire feel. This is the gospel uh, to the ecumene. Well, then what do you do with John? Now, this is, this is where I've 
been thinking this this issue through, and I think I think with John, uh, what we're looking at is is uh, at least portions of John. You can see John is speaking into. See, we look at the Roman Empire. Roman Empire. You have the Oriental world, and you have you have the world of the of the Roman Republic for a long time. And the Roman Republic was a very straight laced, stoical. They despised. It's ra- rather was rather rare actually in the ancient world that the Roman em- the Roman Republic by and large, despised the homoerotic. That's very rare. The Oriental world, most of the pagan world, it doesn't matter. You know, men, women, boys, girls, animals, it doesn't matter, really. There's not much differentiation. There was in the Roman Republic, but as the Roman Republic began to collapse into the Roman Empire and as as Eastern influences pervaded more and more, and especially as Greek influences pervaded more and more, we, we notoriously know that in the decline of the Roman Empire, there is a terrible decline into the homoerotic. We know that. And we know that the Greek, uh, the Greek world and Greek thought began to pervade that. Now, we find the same thing is true in the Western world. As we've, as we've moved forward in the Western world, you can see a move through all of these eras. And in the last, if you look at, what I want to suggest is when you come into the last era, the decadent era of an empire era, the homoerotic becomes prevalent or becomes something that is um, on stage, and it begins to be the tail that wags the dog. If you look at the, if you look at the late British Empire, for example, in its decadent form, most decadent form, say from about the turn of the century, Oxford and Cambridge become almost fairylands. I mean, I'm serious. If you look at someone now, uh, Bertrand Russell said the smartest man he ever knew was John Maynard Keynes. Keynes was a was a pretty active homosexual, and all the 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 large intellectual circles in Oxford and Cambridge were very dominated by that ethos. You had very loose ethos of sexuality anywhere, anyway. A uh, very, very funny account of, oh gosh, I, you know, I didn't think of this before I came up here, but in uh, Alistair McIntyre's uh, work on ethics, and he describes who's the guy that, the, the intuitivist, who's, uh, what's his name? Yeah, G.E. Moore. Yeah, he describes, G.E. Moore says, he says, well, goodness is just intuitively known. He says, it's like yellow. Either you see it or you don't. He has a very, very funny an illuminating account of what that really meant in, at Cambridge. And what it basically meant was uh, it led to almost any kind of, you know, you, I, I see yellow and it, and it means I have sex with about whoever I want. That's what it, that's what it meant. And, and it declined into a very homoerotic perspective. And, and increasingly you see Oxford and Cambridge being dominated by, if you will, a platonic ethos. And we all know that if, if you read, if you read the, all the dialogues of Plato, see, the, the, the Greek world is actually, is actually ambivalent about this. Aristotle condemns homosexuality. Plato and the laws condemns homosexuality. But if you look at, you read the Symposium, you read the Lysis, you read several of his other dialogues, which are all on friendship, 
See, it's one thing to have a nice little law, and the laws that say we condemn this, but then you read his central dialogues, and you find that this is the heart of everything in Plato. It is the heart of everything. And it is the, it is, it is the, the mass, pedophilia is at the heart of it. It is the master impressing his own form on the boy. Uh, they see this as an intellectual, uh, this part of the whole uh, intellectual ethos of, of Greece. So the heart of, uh, the heart of the Greek mind is very, very close to the homoerotic. I mean, that's very difficult, I think, to uh, read out of Plato. All right, so, yes. Uh, you know, I, I don't actually know. I th- that, that certainly would that certainly would be the case. Homosexual prostitution would be condemned. Um, I think I think Aristotle is more uh, puritanical than that. Uh, I, I actually I actually I'm not I couldn't tell you offhand. But uh, yeah, what's pretty clear is that it's pretty. If all you got to do is read the symposium, and if you want to say, well, they didn't really believe this, that's like you know, reading the Gospels and saying you don't really believe in God in the Bible, it's just as, it, this is just like big. This is the big, big deal. Everybody is singing the praises of their lover. And they're all male lovers. Okay, so, so uh, here's, here's what I want to do with this. I want to, concentrating on the Gospel of John, uh, because I think it's in John that all these things come to a head. There are some things missing from John. So it's not going to be exclusively from John, but mostly with John. I'd like to uh, look, at, look at all three or four of these issues and see a little bit of what John has to say about them, because in fact, they're all related. If we're looking at the homoerotic, they're all related. So first of all, if we begin here, we look at the whole issue of the Father. And I brought this up the other night. The hidden person in the Old Testament is not the Son, I, you know, the theophanies are all the sun. Who is it that makes God visible? It's the sun. Who is that pillar of fire? It's the sun. Um, when God shows up in visible form, that's pretty clear who it is. And the Spirit is everywhere in the Old Testament. The breath of God is everywhere in the Old Testament. So the, the Son and the Spirit are pretty clear, but the hidden person is the Father. And I don't think that identity can ever be really if you will, come to maturity until you have the revelation of the Father. If you'll, if you'll open in your Bibles to Ephesians 3.14, Mark, I'll be interested in what you do with this. I want to intrude on your trespass on your area just a little bit. Um, but Ephesians 3.14 says, uh, this is one of Paul's prayers, for this reason I'll, I bow my knee to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole family and heaven and earth is named. Or if I were to paraphrase that, or I were to draw out implications of it, from in whom or from whom everybody in the family of God derive their identity. Your name is your identity. Who names you? Your father names you. And we're told here that it is the father who names uh, the whole family in heaven and on earth. We are named by the father. Of course, that just makes sense. If we, if if there's any, you know, we don't we don't understand who the Father is ultimately. Here, you can be good Platonists here. 
don't understand who the father is ultimately because I've been a father of my family and therefore I understand who God is as father. It's really quite the other way around. How can I know what fatherhood is at all? Because there is an ultimate category of fatherness in the universe who is found in God the Father. And we all, on some deep, intuitive, platonic level, if you will, almost, we know that. That's why I can be a father, because even if I'm not self-conscious about it, there is a revelation of this in the universe. But it's not clear, you see, until Jesus shows up. In the Old Testament, we find fatherhood is very initially revealed in the person of Abraham. Abraham is a mighty father. God changes his name to Abraham, which means a father of a multitude. And Abraham is is a father who gives his uh, identity to his son. Uh, With Abraham's life, we find the whole drama with Isaac is lived out. And it's it's a very long drama. It takes up a lot of chapters. In, uh, in the book of uh, Genesis. Uh, so we find that fatherhood is very much on the front stage immediately in the Old Testament, but the fatherhood of God is still pretty hidden. When we get to, um, by the time we get to, oh, I, I want to make this point. There are a lot of reasons for child sacrifice. There's a, there are a lot of reasons, a lot of theology, if we can draw a lot of theology out of why is it that God took Abraham through this whole drama of uh, almost sacrificing Isaac and he didn't. But I'll just bring this out, and this is related again to what I said the other night. The tribal father is brutal, and the tribal father would not hesitate to sacrifice the son. Um, and we find God seems to, he just, he just takes Abraham on this, you know, this balancing act. He almost has to sacrifice his son. He trusts God through this entire affair, but he almost sacrifices his son, and then he is saved from sacrificing his son, and that forever is in the memory of, of Israel. Now, they, they lapsed from that. There is child sacrifice every time they, they fall into all kinds of idolatry, and Most of this idolatry requires child sacrifice. This happens on numerous occasions. But deep within the identity of Israel is the central act that God stopped the sacrifice of Isaac. Now, why? You know the joke. Everybody knows the joke. You don't even have to laugh at it because you've heard it 30 times. But why is it that, why did Abraham have to sacrifice Isaac when he was 12? Because when he was 13, it would have been a sacrifice. Okay, but what you see what is true, why do you sacrifice your kid when he's 12 in the pagan world? Because by the time he's 13, he's big enough and strong enough to kill you. And your rivalry with your father is that intense. The question is, who's going to rule the roost? Is it going to be the father or the son? The father and the son, in all likelihood, have a rivalrous relationship. See, rivalry enters all these relationships. Rivalry and hatred enter all these relationships, and the father and the son are rivals to one another, and God put a stop to the rivalry between the father and the son. There are a lot of other things you could say about it, but that is the case. God put an end to the rivalry between the father and the son, and the father and the son now have a relationship of love and respect, and that's rare in the tribal and primitive world. All right? Now, if, if we jump, if we go right over to the Gospel of John, what you find 
If you just open up your concordance, you will find, we all know, you know, Jesus comes on the scene, and all of a sudden, the Father is revealed. The Lord's Prayer begins with our Father. God is no longer, you know, I, I really like this, what Mark is doing. That you're, come, you're invited to dinner. Come and have dinner. But if you get too close, I'll kill you. See, and that's gone. Jesus comes on the scene, and all of a sudden, it is the Father, and there's intimacy, and there's, the, you know, the, there, there's this welcome. There's this sense of uh, uh, this, this tenderness, this intimacy that we have with the Father once Jesus shows up. Now, if you go through your concordance, you will find that the word Father, there are more occurrences of the word Father in the Gospel of John than there are in all. I think, actually, I haven't counted them up, but I think if you were to add up Matthew, Mark, and Luke, number of times the word Father is used, there are more usages of Father in John than in all three of the other Gospels combined. It's just, you know, it's just massive everywhere. And all of a sudden, in the Gospel of John, you have everything about the Father. So what you're finding in the Gospel of John is, is a culmination of a whole bunch of things, and identity is being given back to us in the Gospel of John in sort of a super way. Now, who is it that gives identity a name? Well, it's the Father. And what you find right away, I'm just going to take you through a couple of these. If you open, for example, to uh, John chapter 8... Actually, you could go to John chapter 5. But we won't, we won't do that because there are just too many. But, well, John chapter 5. Uh, you have all of this stuff about nobody has ever seen the form of the Father, but I've seen his form. Uh, I'm the one who testifies to it. I, it d- describes being sent by the Father. In the 8th chapter, chapter of John, we have this long... A discourse about Abraham, who is the father of nations, and he ties Abraham up with the father. Um, Abraham, they say that they're Abraham's descendants, um, and but they want to kill me. Abraham, who is the, the mighty father, he says, if you knew the father of Abraham, you would believe in me, but you don't know the father of it. You have all this father stuff tied up with Abraham and the father. You go through, I'm not even going to do it, because just, it's, just, it's just a plethora of everything about the Father. John chapter 10, John chapter 14, everywhere the Father is revealed. And by the way, uh, just to, to make this point at the outset, Tom asked me to throw in a whole bunch of phenomenology tonight, because he studied philosophy at Berkeley. John, I, th- I have always intuitively felt, see, see there's, for a long time, you know, there was this debate with New Testament scholars, a lot of New Testament scholars want to say, oh, John, that's, that's really a Greek book. Well, now you see the pendulum swung back. The, it's very clear it's an intensely Jewish book. John seems to know everything about, the, about Jerusalem, seems to know everything about the sacrificial system, seems to know everything about the temple. I, I heard Jim a number of years ago, he does this, do this fascinating teaching of you go through the Gospel of John and point for point, he's taking you through the the whole of the, 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 was it the tabernacle or the temple? One, doesn't matter. And you get to the middle of it, you got the, you know, you're in the olive grove. Well, the, the Holy of Holies is all, it's all olive wood, right? So you finally get to the center of everything. You're actually taking a tour through. So this, it, there's no question, this guy knows he's Jewish from top to bottom. But it's also the case. All you have to do is naively read the book and it reads like metaphysics. Am I not right? There's all this fascinating, it's like, it's like platonic almost. All this stuff about the Father and the Son and the, 
all the perichorosis stuff, how the Father is in the Son, and the Son is in the Father, and everybody is in everybody. It feels very platonic. It, I mean, to me, it does, anyways. So I think you have a book that is, in fact, intensely Jewish, but it does have this whole feel of speaking into this mindset or this, this aesthetic feel of the Greek mind and the Greek soul. It's, it's really both. I don't think you have to choose between those. Um, um, so uh, that's what a whole bunch of this stuff about the Father uh, sounds like and feels like, and, and it, it just feels, it feels very metaphysical, if you will, like a metaphysician would talk. Now you get to John chapter 17, it's interesting with a high priestly prayer, and here you have, if you will, this is the culmination of the Abraham-Isaac problem. Abraham-Isaac problem is the sacrifice of the son, and in John chapter 17, you have the son voluntarily offering himself up to the wrath of the father in order to save his own, all of these out here, and yet what you have is complete voluntariness, and this offering up is a, an offering up not of coercion or hatred or anger, but an offering up of perfect, complete love, and the Father receives him in perfect and complete love. It is, the, it is if you will, the resolution of the Abrahamic-Isaac problem. There's the, there is a human sacrifice, but it is not a sacrifice that is coerced or is made in hatred. It is a sacrifice that is one of perfect voluntariness, and it is a sacrifice that is the culmination of all love, and, of, and of, 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 there will be complete redemption that will come out of this for all things. So it's a, it's a fascinating resolution to the father-son problem, if you will, which of course is resolved ultimately in the uh, resurrection. All right, now if we go on to the if we go on to the brother brother controversy or the brother brother issue and John has a whole lot to say about this. You can now let me say this. You cannot solve the brother problem unless you solve unless you have the father issue settled. Why is there rivalry between brothers? Because the father is in rivalry with the sons. Or it may be the father favors one son over another. There is, a, there is a father problem. If you've resolved the father problem, the father gives identity to the son and then to the sons, then the rivalry problem between the sons is also resolved. And the Gospel of John has given us this huge background, this huge backdrop of the father giving us himself in all fullness therefore giving us all identity, and therefore the brothers can be reconciled to one another because they found their full and true identity in the Father and they have no rivalry with the Father. Now, who was the first Nazarite? Jim doesn't know. I asked him. He didn't know who it was. He was totally ignorant. <laughs> who was the first Nazarite? Nope. Don't make me ask Jim. Who was the first Nazarite? I know. He, he, he knows. You know he knows. Is there anything he doesn't know about the Bible? <laughs> who is it? Anybody know who the first Nazarite is? Esau? Noah? No. Yeah. Who said Joseph? Come up here and you get a blue star. A gold star. <laughs> Joseph is the first Nazarite. If you want, you turn back in your Bible. It's, it's, it's pretty close to the end of Deuteronomy. You can find this in a couple of places. But Deuteronomy chapter 33, you also find it in Genesis 49. 
uh, Deuteronomy 33, when there are the blessings that Moses gives to the tribes of Israel, and um, 33, the 16th verse, and here's, here's giving blessings to Joseph, and of course Joseph is actually Ephraim and Manasseh. You have two tribes. Joseph, the tribe of Joseph is the tribe of Ephraim and the tribe of Manasseh. So there's this blessing on Joseph. And when you get down to the 16th verse, there's a whole bunch of cool things he says, but the 16th verse he says, in the second half of it, he says, let the blessing come on the head. Gosh, isn't that interesting? Let the blessing come, we haven't heard anything about that this week, I don't think. Let the blessing come on the head of Joseph. And on the crown of the head of him who was, what's it say there? Separated from his brothers. Now, you remember the Joseph story. See, now, we, we learn that Nazarite has to do with being separated. Well, that, you know, you take that initially to mean separated unto God. But if you go back to the, and Jim was pointing out, says this is actually this is before the law, so it's a kind of a pre-Nazarite. But this is the first, this is the first uh, uh, hint you have of a Nazarite in the Bible, it's pretty clear. It says he was separate from his brothers. Well, we know why was he separate from his brothers. His brothers wanted to kill him. <clears throat> and as a second best, he was saved from being killed, so they were nice to his brothers, so they just sold him into slavery. See, I, you know, I'll tell you, these families in Genesis give me so much hope. They are, this family is so screwed up. And God saved, he's saving the whole world through this family. That ought to give us hope, you see. <laughs> see, I mean, I, I mean, really, we do not have nice evangelical families. That's all a lie. We have really screwed up families. And the story of Genesis uh, tells a whole lot of truth. Now, by and large, we don't kill each other now. We've moved beyond the tribal era, but we want to. <laughs> all right, so they sell their brother into slavery. They, they take his glory. Tell, just stand up here and explain that. Go ahead. Tell us about that. Take, take his garment off and they tear it up. That, that's his, okay, the equivalent of taking his hair off. See, I didn't know that. You gotta, okay, so, so they take his garment off and that's the equivalent of his glory. And, and then he ends up in Egypt and he becomes virtually the prime minister of Egypt, stores all his grain up and then all his... I, to me... The most perfectly dramatic, the three most perfectly dramatic stories in the Bible. This is one of them. When his brothers come down, I remember, I can still remember reading this when I was about 20 and weeping. It is an amazing story. I also love Esther. It's like Esther is like, oh, Henry, you know. So talk about a surprise ending. And then the gospel. It's one of, in my opinion, the three best stories in the Bible. So he's separated from his brothers. His brothers all hate him. And he ends up being the one who saves them because he does holy warfare for them. Now, see, that tells us a lot about what a Nazarite is. Now, if you look at the Gospel of John, what city did Jesus, what town did they settle down in? Where did Jesus go? What town was he raised in? Isn't that interesting? And if you look at the book of Matthew, it quotes, it quotes the fact that they settled in Nazareth, it quotes uh, Judges 13.5, which is the story of Samson. 
It, it explicitly says, tells us that Jesus was a Nazarite because he was raised... Nazareth, is, the point is he was raised as a Nazarite. He is a Nazarite. That's where he was raised. In the Gospel of John, the very first story that we have told to us, very first thing we're, we're told about Nazareth is, anybody remember what happens when Bartholomew sees Jesus? I'm, yeah, Nathaniel, when he sees Jesus, what's he say? Yeah, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Now, I take that to mean, you see, if you, if you start to go through the Gospels, what you find, for example, in the book of Luke, does anybody remember how Jesus' ministry begins? He goes into the wilderness, he's tempted by the devil, and then what's the very first thing he does when his ministry starts? What does he do? Yeah. No, 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 go to the Gospel of Luke. Gospel of Luke. Yeah, and John, yeah, but in the Gospel of Luke. He goes back to his hometown. He goes back to Nazareth. And he reads some, uh, he, he gives a little Bible lesson. And what do all these people want to do? He gets rejected by his brethren. He is rejected by his brethren. And if you move through, if you move through, uh, for example, go to John 6. whole of John chapter 6, the feeding of the 5,000, what you find is this progressive rejection of Jesus that happens through the Gospels. And in the sixth chapter of John, we find that there begins to be a heating up of this rejection. In the 41st verse, it says of the sixth chapter of John, Then the Jews complained about him because he said, I am the bread which came down from heaven. And then they said, Is this not Jesus, the son of who? Joseph. It says Joseph in John the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know. How is it then that he says, I have come down from heaven? And they reject him. The rest of the story says, then from then on, many disciples turned away from him. And then this is when Jesus is this sort of pathetic scene, you know. Jesus knows what he's doing, but he turns to the disciples and says, do you want to go away too? And Peter says, well, you know, you've ruined us for everything. It's that, that is what coming, I had, remember back in the Jesus people days, that's what some of these converted Jesus people said. They wanted to go back to the streets and to fighting and drinking and women. They said, but you know, once you know Jesus, you've just been ruined for everything. And that's kind of how the disciples are. They've been ruined for everything. He says, where else is there to go? You've ruined everything. That's how I feel about reading Cornelius Van Til in Metaphysics. You see, once you've read Van Til, he's, you've seen through everything. There's nothing left to know. You've seen to the bottom of it all. It's all idolatry, you see. So this, uh, that's what Jesus does to everything, you see. So, so uh, uh, we find this, this rejection goes on. And then in the seventh chapter of John, uh, the fifth verse, it says, this is when Jesus is uh, going to go up to the Feast of Tabernacles, and it says, the fifth verse, for even his brothers did not believe in him. So he's clearly a Nazarite. Now, if you'll turn over to the 18th, chapter of John, there's something very interesting. Before Jesus goes into holy warfare, uh, we find the 18th chapter, this is when the soldiers, the chief priests, the Pharisees, the troops, the officers, and they all come to him with lanterns and torches and weapons. The fourth verse, knowing uh, Jesus therefore knowing all things would come upon him, went forward and said to them, whom are, we, whom are you seeking? And they answered, what do they answer? Anybody remember? Jesus of Nazareth. And he said to them, I am he. 
And Judas, who betrayed him, also stood with him. And now when he said to him, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. And he asked them again, saying, Who are you seeking? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus answered, I told you, I am he. So before he goes into holy warfare, the final holy warfare, you see, it is reasserted that he is a Nazarite doing holy warfare. All right? So, here we find Jesus being rejected by his brothers. We find this whole brother-brother motif um, working itself out. He's rejected by his brothers. Daniel's rejected by his brothers in order to save his brothers. Jesus is rejected by his brothers in order to save his brothers. Now, this is, it's also the case, you see here, that what I was talking about the other night, the crack-up of biology. See, what we're finding is the transformation of all things. He's rejected by his brothers. Some of his brothers are going to continue to reject him. Some of them won't, and they will become true brothers. All right? All right, now if we go to the husband-wife issue. Um, and this is, there's not a whole lot to say about this. John really does not speak to this very much. If you want to know about, you've got to look at, you know, all the women things are all in Luke. Just, just as an aside, I think this is very interesting. You know, there are two accounts of Jesus being anointed before his death. Mary, who's the, the sister of Lazarus, anoints him, and John. But in the Gospel of Luke, it's, we're told it was a, it's a different woman. It's pretty clear. And the church has, you know, there's been a lot of conflating of that through history, and with Mary Magdalene as well. Uh, and I don't think that's Mary Magdalene who is in Simon the Pharisee's house. Jesus goes to Simon the Pharisee's house, and it says a woman of the streets or a woman who is a sinner. Now, I take that. I'm, see, I'm just naive. I'm just a little old pastor. You know, I'm not even a pastor. Now, I just take that to be a prostitute. Is that, is that a fair assumption? So she's a sinner? I, it seems to me it's a fair assumption. Now, one of the laws of the Old Testament is that a prostitute's wages are not acceptable in the tabernacle. It's very interesting. She brings, if she's a prostitute, she brings this expensive perfume, pours, you know, weeps all over his feet. This is a very, this is an amazing scene, you know. This is one of those things. And Simon, the Pharisee's house, this respectable man and this woman of the streets comes and weeps on his feet and wipes the, you can just, you can just imagine how disreputable this whole thing is. It's like happening in Victorian England, you know, that some street hooker walks in and, and then she pours this expensive perfume all over him, which is probably what she plies her trade with. It's her perfume as a prostitute. Now, it's fascinating that the wages of a prostitute are not acceptable in the sanctuary. Jesus accepts them. It's a little bit, I take it, it's a little bit like, you know, Jesus' capacity to reverse all kinds of things. Uh, and, and just as the church is, the, if the church... Uh, in her natural state as a harlot, and he transforms us into a bride. You know, you get married in white. Harlots usually aren't virgins. You get married in white. He makes you a virgin again. So the church is transformed, and there's this acceptance that seems to be metaphysically impossible. All right, so that happens in Luke. There's not a whole bunch in Luke about, about um, the husband-wife issue. Yes. No, I'm sorry, not a whole lot of John about the husband-wife issue. Uh, but now we come, to, we come to the final issue, which is the issue of friendship. 
Now, I first, this is first, this is real obvious when you see it, like most things are that are worth knowing. But the first person that called my attention to this was Alan Bloom in Closing of the American Mind. And Alan Bloom was, was uh, who I, he, I think he is a, uh, I think he's a fascinating writer. He was a Straussian, if you know what that is. Um, uh, he, he was a, a homosexual, but he was not an ideologue. You, you, you won't, you'll never see hint of that at all. And he writes, what he writes actually about the homoerotic is very illuminating. Uh, he's got a whole book on friends and friendship, which is uh, marvelous, on people like Rousseau and a, a number of, it's a marvelous book. But he points out in the book that, as he's also Jewish, that was the other point I wanted to make, he points out in the book that the Old Testament is nothing, almost nothing but blood. In other words, blood relationships, tribal relationship, family relationship, clan relationship, national relationship. There is almost nothing in the Old Testament about friendship. Almost nothing. Now you have Abraham as the friend of God, but humanly speaking, you only have a cluster of friendships in one place in the Old Testament. Everything, I think, is anticipated in the Old Testament that's in the New, but the anticipations are sometimes pretty sparse, and the only place you find any anticipation of friendship in the Old Testament is with David. It's very obvious that Jonathan and David are friends. And then Hushai, after Jonathan's death, Hushai is mentioned uh, four or five times as a counselor of David, but it says, describes him consistently as the friend of David. That's it. Everything else is family, blood, tribe. Friendship is a Greek category. Uh, and Aristotle in his Nicomachean Ethics uh, writes at great length about friendship. And for you see, friendship is, what's the difference between friendship and family? Friendship is based on common interests that are free interests. They're voluntary. If you have a family business together, or if you have a family estate or a family farm, you have common interests, but they are, if you will, determined interests. They're determined by blood and land. And you, you may like each other, you may not. But friendship is a matter of freely chosen interests that you share with your friend. And Aristotle writes at great length about this. Now, it's a Greek category. You see, and at, at, this, at this point in history, you begin to find that friendship kind of comes on the scene. But almost immediately, friendship is perverted and becomes homoerotic. So you find in Plato, this is the whole center of Plato, is the homoerotic friendship. You not only have freely chosen common interests, but, it's, but it is eroticized. It's sexualized almost immediately. Now, why is it that you have almost nothing about friendship until you get to the Gospel of John? Why is it you don't have friendship in the Bible until the New Testament? Because it's too hot to handle. Plato's why. This is what happens. Until you become friends with Jesus, and until there is an outpouring of the Holy Spirit, freely chosen interests that are commonly shared voluntarily are too hot for the human race to handle. And the Greek world proves it. Now you see, you have, you have homosexuality in lots of places. This last, uh, in uh, First Things, for example, 
this last issue of First Things, there's a marvelous article by the, I think it's the Bishop of Uganda. It's about what is Anglicanism. And of course, you know, there are 35 jillion Anglicans in Uganda. And he points out that, that part of what has made up Anglicanism in Africa has been martyrdom. And he tells the story of, of 13 of the king's paramours who became Christians who then resisted, uh, this would be in the last century, one of the tribal kings, resisted his homosexual advances and they were martyred for it. And this is deep. You see, you want to know why the Africans are mad at the American Episcopal Church? Well, why do you think? I mean, these people have paid, they've paid blood for it. So you, you have homosexuality all over the ancient world but it's in Greece that it comes, if you will, to its pitch because it's tied to friendship and it's totally voluntary. It's not the king coercing. In fact, coercion and money are what pervert it or pollute it for the Greeks. It's freely chosen. Not your wife. You know, Xantippe was, was no a dish. It's not your wife. It's the boys. That's who you share your life with. Okay. So... What we find is um, uh, friendship now suddenly comes on the scene and the Gospel of John seems to speak into this. Now, the, the passage that we had read early on in, in, the, uh, in the liturgy tonight, uh, if you'll open, if you want to open to this, if you'll look at uh, John, first chapter of John, the 16th verse, it says, and all of his fullness we, we have Excuse me. And of his fullness, we have all received grace for grace. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father, he has declared him. And what did you, did you just translate that yourself tonight? Because you read, you said exegeted. Is that actually in your translation? It is. It's actually, it, it uses the Greek word exegeted. What's exegesis? Exegesis means that you explain, or you, 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 you tell what a passage means. So Jesus is in the bosom of the Father, describing this Trinitarian relationship. And because he's in the bosom of the Father, he knows the Father. No one else has ever seen him. Jesus saw him, sees him, is in heaven with him. Uh, and because he's in the bosom of the Father, he is capable of exegeting the Father. So he reveals the Father. Now, the Gospel of John, it's pretty clear. You know, I know that there are these scholarly, scholarly debates about who wrote the Gospel of John. I don't, I mean, you know, I think the way New Testament scholarship works is you see what the most obvious answer is, and you know that isn't it. It's pretty clear that the Apostle, who was a young man, was probably the youngest of the disciples, is the writer of the Gospel. He wrote it when he was a very old man. And then the last book he wrote when he was exiled on Patmos was the, was the book of Revelation. And in about five places in the Gospel of John, it tells us that it was written, it descri he describes himself as the one whom Jesus loved. And I actually, I haven't gone through, just because I didn't have time, but I'm not even sure which word for love is, I just know it isn't eros, it's never eros. I don't know if it's probably both philia and agape. In 13.8, it is agape. Uh, it probably, probably uses both words. It uses both words, for example, in the restoration of Peter. 
it's sort of at one point it's agape, another point it's philia. It, it, you make we could make too much out of agape or philia. They seem to be used a little more interchangeably than I think we're accustomed to. But you get to the, the 13th chapter and you see now all of a sudden you see the great crisis. Jesus as the Nazarite is about to go into holy war. The great crisis of Jesus' life is coming upon him. He's been separated from his brethren. He only has his disciples and his few friends left. And now we begin to see this phrase arising, the one whom Jesus loved. And at the Last Supper, the 13th chapter of John, it describes um, uh, 13, uh, 13, the 23rd verse, as uh, this is when he would, of course, in the other Gospels, when he's uh, instituting the Passover, the Lord's Supper, now he's about to reveal who the ultimate false brother is, Judas. I suppose we could have done something with Judas tonight, but take us too far afield. But he reveals that uh, he's about to be betrayed by one of the insiders. And then the 23rd verse, it says, Now there was leaning on Jesus' bosom one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. And that's John. Now, of course, there are all kinds of people in the ELCA and the, and the uh, Cusa Episcopal Church USA and all kinds. What do you want to say about that verse? Well, it's homoerotic, isn't it? See, I mean, this is the silly place. What do you think it means? If the Father is in the bosom of the Son and therefore He can exegete the Father, what do you think the point John is making is? He is on the bosom of Jesus. I mean, physically, I don't quite know how to picture this. I've got New Testament scholars here. How, I mean, I know everybody reclined around these tables in those days, and I'm sure that this is easily picturable as as uh, Jesus' friend, he's, you know, I don't know, got his head on his chest or whatever. I don't know exactly how it works. But, but the point, there's a theological point. Jesus is competent to exegete the Father because he is in the bosom of the Father. John is competent to exegete Jesus because he is in the bosom of Jesus. That's why it's there. Now, why is the Gospel of John so radically different from all of the other Gospels? Because it's written, if you will, from the inside. It's written by his best friend. He knows Jesus intimately. He's Jesus' uh, alter ego almost. So he writes about Jesus from the inside. And he's competent to do this because he has laying on the bosom of Jesus. Now, about four other times now, we find through these discourses, uh, this description of the disciple whom Jesus loved. You get to the very end of the gospel, and uh, we, find, we find this all over again. The seventh chapter of um, this, after the restoration of Peter, or in the restoration of Peter, we find that this is described. And in the 20th, the 20th verse, uh, this the last description he gives of himself this way. Then Peter, turning around, saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following who also had leaned on his breast at the supper and said, Lord, who is the one who betrays you? He's hearkening back to that. So there's this question that goes on. But that's the last, on a number of occasions, you see, this is brought up again. This is Jesus' best friend, the one whom Jesus loved. 
Now you get in the middle of the last discourses of Jesus, the upper room discourses, where it really gets platonic. I mean, this is where, all, you know what perichoresis is? It's the Father's in the Son, and the Son is in the Father, and the Holy Ghost is in the Father and the Son, and we're in the Holy Ghost and the Father and the Son. Everybody's in everybody, and you've got this great dance going on. It's real metaphysical feeling. It's this really metaphysical feel about it. And in the midst of all of this, in the 15th chapter, all of a sudden we find that uh, friendship bursts out and becomes the new great category for all things. And he says, where is this? He says, um, uh, the, the 11th verse of the 15th chapter, These things I have spoken to you that my joy may remain in you, and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, than to lay down one's life for his friends. For you are friends... If you do whatever I command you, no longer do I call you servants, for a servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all things that I heard from my Father, I have made known to you. I voluntarily, freely revealed these things to you, and now you freely share these things with me. And we have this relationship of free association. It's a voluntary relationship. It is not a blood relationship. Or at least it transcends blood, you see. So now... Anybody who becomes a disciple of Jesus is brought into this circle of friendship and we become like the disciple that Jesus loved. It begins with one and then there are the, you know, the, there's James and John and Peter and now it's all the disciples in the upper room. When the Holy Spirit is poured out on the day of Pentecost, Jesus is revealed to us from the inside and we become the friend of Jesus. And blood is transcended. Now, what you find with all of these is that friendship becomes the new category that invades all of the other categories. And it's, it, there's something new in this. There's a growth in this that you don't really have much in the Old Testament. You find, for example, that now the one relationship that is properly eroticized. Now you see, here's a, here's the, here's a certain point you can make. The kingdom of God perfects, you know, I, I don't know how to talk about this because, you know, Nature, grace, you start sounding like a Roman Catholic. I just don't know how else to talk about this. The kingdom of God perfects certain things. Marriage is capable of being perfected. It is the final category, if you will. It is the bride and her husband. This is the great final category. So this is perfected. What starts out as biology is perfected in the kingdom of God. Brother, brother is transformed from being brother-brother, who are blood relatives, Jacob and Esau, into John and Jesus, or Peter and John, into friendship. It transcends blood. And father and son cease to be rivals and enemies. They become, as adults, they become friends. Father and the son are friends with one another, as the father and the son in heaven are friends with one another. Friendship becomes the new category that invades everything. Through most of history, husbands and wives have not been friends. Husbands and wives, that has to do with estates. That has to do with legitimacy of children. It has to do with uh, biological life together. It has to do with the sex drive, and it has to do with estates. And friendship has, for the, for the most part, you know, and it's worked out in different ways. In Italy, you have your wife, and then you have your mistress. The first people, C.S. Lewis says, the first people to really, if you will, who almost invented companionate marriage were the Puritans. If you've read uh, Marriage to a Difficult Man, for example, the story of Jonathan Edwards' household, 
fairly a wonderful marital story of friends. That would have been fairly, that would have been something that was blossoming at that time. Katie and Martin Luther. Uh, Mar- Martin and uh, uh, Katie and Martin, that is one of the most important relationships in the history of the world, I suspect. And, and uh, German marriages and homes were modeled on it right down to World War I. Katie and Martin were friends. That wasn't true. But I, I mean, I'm sure there are exceptions to it, but by and large, it wasn't true. Now you see our expectation is of a companionate marriage. And it's one of the difficulties we have. We put so much weight on it without extended families that sometimes the weight is so much the relationship can hardly bear it. But, but friendship now invades the husband-wife relationship, and that has become a normal expectation. And you don't, have, you don't perfect the marriage apart from friendship. You have voluntarily, freely chosen, common interests that you have with one another, not just estates and children. Likewise, brother-brother is transformed into friend-friend, and father and son is transformed. Now, if that doesn't happen, if the, if the Greeks have their way, what happens is that all of these are perverted. The erotic relationship descends to this. So you get, you get brother-brother, and it's eroticized, and then it descends even further to this, to pedophilia. And that's what, this is kind of what's on the chopping block now. So either you have the Greek solution or you have the Jesus solution. You know, it's kind of what it comes down to, the Greek solution or the Jesus solution. And the truth is, um, it's impossible for us to pansexualize the world again, which is what, by and large, the, the homosexual agenda is, is not, it's, it's not just about homosexual marriage, it's about pansexualization. Let's make the whole world sexy like it was in the pagan world. You can't do that. It's, you can't go backwards like that. It's a blip. It's not going to happen. All right, now, just to close up, the, the finality of this is, because um, uh, this, this issue came up on the list, and the issue was, it appears, you know, Peter were here doing his Rosenstock UC thing. Um, it appears that if you've got this sort of tribal monarchical empire, and it looks like where we are now is you've got a world global, the whole world is becoming an economic empire. Uh, you know, Walmart or any multinational corporation transcends all national boundaries. I mean, multinationals, they could. They'd, they'd, be, they'd be glad to sell their own grandmother rope to hang themselves. They don't care. They don't care what boundaries there are. Um, but at the same time, as nice as cheap consumer goods are from Walmart, you cannot find your identity in Walmart. So what we're finding is that on the one, we're finding two things going on. On the one hand, the third world is truly still tribal. Africa is tribal. The Arab world is still largely tribal. In the first world, we're finding neo-tribalism emerge, which is what gangs are, and, and the whole move to find our identity in small ethnic... This is what somebody brought up of the Greek wedding movie. That's what it's all about. I've got to find my identity again, and I'm going to find it in blood, in clan, in tribe, or in some small gathering of some sort. So we're finding a retribalization of the world while we're moving towards a, a global empire. Now, the... 
what we're moving towards eventually is that all of these are, are going to be in existence all at once. You know, if you go through Western history for the last thousand years, we've, well, and with the collapse of the Roman Empire, you, you move from empire to tribes, the Vandals, the Goths, the Vikings, the, you know, who knows, all the tribe, tribal peoples of what became Europe, all these tribal peoples slowly the chiefs, there were some chiefs that won, some chiefs that became subordinate, and other chiefs that came out on top, and you start to have monarchies. So you start to have nations. So Europe became a series of national entities. And then finally, by the 19th, well, in the 19th century, it becomes really clear. You've got world empire growing up. In the 20th century, 19th and 20th century, you still have world empire growing up. And there appears to be a cyclicalness about this. But in the Gospel of John, or in John as a totality, I would suggest that you come to the fullness of all things. You're going to have to come to fullness of maturity at some point. And in the Gospel of John, and in John as a whole, you come to fullness of maturity. You have friendship develop, which matures all these others. But the final category, when John is on Patmos, what's the, the final vision that John has is, so you don't find anything about marriage much, Almost nothing in John, but you do find it in Revelation. What do you find at the end of Revelation? The marriage feast of the Lamb. The bride of Christ. The city which is the bride. So the final vision is of marriage being perfected and being the final form of the kingdom of God. So, um, so all of these come to their fullness all at once. And, and if you're going to come to fullness of identity... Um, so you've got to do them all at once. You've got to have the Father there to give identity. He gives identity to the brothers. As the brothers grow and mature, they want wives. So marriage flowers. And finally, all of this flowers in friendship, which invades every other category. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.